Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Professor Aruna Garcia, who's a GP partner and primary care network clinical director in Leicester. She's also chair of the NHS Confederation's primary care network advisory group, and she sits on her integrated care system as a representative clinical director. In this conversation, we're talking about the impact PCNs have already had, what makes a strong PCN, and some of the key challenges networks have faced. We also talk about the introduction of integrated care systems and what these could mean for primary care networks and practices, as well as how primary care networks can work effectively to support GP practices. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Aruna. Thank you. So you're a GP partner and also a clinical director of a PCN. We know the role of being a clinical director is quite challenging, but why did you decide to take on that role? I actually joined GP 15 years ago. And as a GP, I really believe in cradle to grave care. I believe in that personal doctor-patient relationship, um, particularly in their life context and continuity. And that's why I became a partner. And also, I think at that time, I was interested in gynecology and sexual health as an extra service. Actually, around the time that I became a partner in Leicester, I joined my federation at the same time as a director and have been involved in transformation of services. Primarily, actually, it was around the time of any qualified provider, if anybody remembers, um, so that we could retain care for our patients within general practice, by general practice. So I think as an evolution of that, I became a CD because I wanted to bring that a bit closer to home. As our workforce challenges were developing, I really wanted to enable that new MDT approach and and support. So with the idea of our ARRS solutions coming through and being offered at scale and I grabbed it with both hands because there was that opportunity to flex services to our community's needs and also start to really reach into the health inequalities, inequity that some communities face was really attractive for me. You're currently working as chair of the NHS Confederation's PCN Advisory Group. Can you tell us a bit about what that role involves? The advisory group actually is a group of members of the national network that supports the NHS Confed team. And it consists actually of a multidisciplinary group of us. So it consists of clinical directors, it consists of managers, it consists of CEOs, and it consists of federation clinical leads. I think that the bit that connects us all is we are driven frontline grassroots service providers and we care about patient care and more importantly, about sustainable primary care so that we can continue to preserve that high quality, high impact patient centred care that we were all born into. Our motto is connect, representing and inspiring. And certainly it's been a lifeline for me as a clinical director, actually. We wanted to connect and support our members and their organisations with peer to peer support. And we want to share our learning and share our resources to help with the developments that people are doing all over the country as individuals and really support that development of primary care at scale. We've developed an app to capture case studies and to make sure that we've got a space for peer-to-peer conversations. And of course, we do our bulletins and webinars to just connect with our group and to 
to demonstrate what people are doing around the country. And as a group of people that are representing at-scale primary care, we actually can have a national voice for PCNs and at-scale primary care. And we want to make sure we use that to influence policy. PCNs have been around for a few years now. Do you think they're making a difference? You know, firstly, I guess for patients, but also for practices and GPs. The short answer is yes, absolutely. But we have to remember it's been a really tumultuous time. And I don't think we've quite realised our potential. We've got to remember that within the first year we were hit with COVID and then we were delivering COVID vaccinations. So we've really only got our teeth into the, the DES in the last year. However, I think we've done brilliantly. We have delivered on the enhanced care homes piece. We have delivered our COVID vaccination programme, which was a huge undertaking um, to the population and and we're responsible for 71% of the vaccinations. We finally got our teeth into health inequalities and have started looking at the prevention agenda and started to drive what I call the prevention revolution in primary care. We've also delivered enhanced access just of October, haven't we, to start to improve access across network hours to deliver a balance of primary care services. We've supported resilience with our primary care colleagues, for our primary care colleagues, not just as PCNs, but in partnership with other PCNs and at-scale organisations like federations. So delivering urgent care solutions, respiratory hubs, and in some places, mental health emergency contact. So that place-based working and partnership working really allows PCNs and primary care at scale to exponentially increase what we can deliver at scale. And therefore, I think we've started on that journey, but we recognise that we have a whole lot more to give. And Therefore, we ask for that continuity um, in 23-24 and that support from the systems to enable primary care leadership and enable collaborative working at place to influence services and to influence strategic decisions on resources. NHS Confederation recently published a report looking at PCNs three years on. One of the things it did look at was what makes a strong PCN which basically sets out the considerations that policymakers and ICSs need to bear in mind. What conclusions did the NHS Confederation come to about what makes a a strong PCN and what ICSs need to do to support them? So talking to our members and looking at examples of PCNs and federations actually across the country of where they have really delivered and have really felt like they have met the needs of their communities across the country, we felt that there was a variation actually amongst them in terms of primarily CD leadership. There's a number of factors that play together to be able to deliver that strong PCN. First and foremost is that CD leadership and CD vision to understand that we want to work or the the PCN wants to work above the DES and can see the benefits and realisation of working at scale. So where that's happened and CDs have been able to work altruistically, we've noticed that our PCNs have delivered services beyond the DES and really started to innovate beyond the DES, which is the most important thing. Behind that, because CDs are often just partners or salary doctors, and in some cases they are nurses or pharmacists, so leadership 
and leadership maturity is a real key factor in that success of PCNs. So ICS is focusing on that leadership and ensuring that they enable training, support, maturity, and an approach, a systems leadership approach that is demonstrating inclusivity so that you can be equal at the table is absolutely key. So that second part of what we noticed for making strong PCNs was where ICSs were really in a place where they respected and valued primary care engagement where they brought them in to become voices at all their levels of ICS um, decision-making, where we noticed that they supported PCN development. Some PCNs needed a little bit more support than others. Where we have managers for integration and transformation, and they've been able to support PCNs, for example, with data. I think ICSs also need to understand that we need There's infrastructure that PCNs need. It's been a huge transformative piece, hasn't it, PCNs, in terms of the ask in such a short space of time, yet we've delivered. So think about what we could deliver with the right support. So that's what we notice, because where relationships and resource and enablement were all in there, Um, And where data was also key, we actually started to deliver some real transformation in different parts of the country. Obviously, this is a really difficult time for general practice, you know, in the NHS as a whole. There are really huge levels of demand, massive waiting lists, shortage of GPs and other stuff. How can PCNs help practices cope with these challenges? I think that we need to recognise that primary care and particularly general practice and PCNs are absolutely intertwined. There is a, a feeling that it is an either or situation with PCNs and general practice. And actually, I think we need to think about it as a almost PCNs or general practice plus and recognising the opportunities of working at scale to start to deliver some of those solutions to support our general practitioners that are on the front line delivering direct care to their communities to protect continuity. On a day-to-day basis, simple things like hub working, for example, Um, and then innovative solutions, for example, where people have delivered group consultations within a PCN. So really starting to lift some of that extra weight that general practice is feeling into a PCN environment. And because they're still family, we're delivering a continuity of care, but as a team of teams, rather than an either or. Um, And there's definitely that the ARRS roles really supporting the MDT approach and supporting the ability for general practice and general practitioners to deliver their care with the expertise of their allied health professionals. I think this is a really exciting time in one way to push that PCN supportive role for general practice because we are feeling very demoralised. We are feeling overburdened at the moment with our care. And frankly, we're feeling like we're not meeting the needs of our patients, which I think is affecting our general practitioners the most. We've got integrated care systems now and PCNs are really key to how integrated care systems are going to interact with primary care. You obviously sit on your ICS as well. What do you think ICSs should be doing now to support and engage with networks and how should their networks feed into the overall integration agenda? 
I think we have demonstrated that if we are integrated as partners at place and at neighbourhood, we can lead on developing solutions from a bottom-up perspective that really work from our, for our communities. But we need the system leaders to recognise the importance of our role as partners. And therefore, we need to be enabled as leaders and enabled in developing our maturity as leaders, I think, So therefore, there's a real onus on systems to support primary care. But there's also a reversal of primary care recognising its role of working actually beyond the DARES, that GP plus that I was talking about and working at scale. And therefore, it's up to us to think about organising ourselves and ensuring that we have representation and influencing and leveraging partnership at place and system. Do you think the move to integrated care systems, is it an opportunity for general practice? And if so, what do networks and practices need to do to make the most of those opportunities? Absolutely. I think that it is a big opportunity for general practice. PCNs are the building blocks of ICSs, and therefore it's vital that we utilise that opportunity to start to think about how we can enable our representation and our influence to develop integrated care pathways to allocate resources and to ensure that finance and funding flows meet the needs of our communities because we are definitely delivering 90% of the of our patient contacts and i think the other bit is we need to recognize our potential as a real innovative space we know what is best for our patients and we know who to work with to co-create and how to work with them to co-create those solutions, particularly within the community, not just our community allied health professionals, such as district nurses, not just our social workers, but more our voluntary care sector organisation and patient champions. So there's definitely something that we can do to really enable an increased breadth of capacity for primary care to wrap around the patient and start to recognise that we can meet the needs that are not about just health outcomes, but about those wider determinants of health and deliver care in our patient's context. There is something also about understanding access is a real challenge for us. And we need to recognise that's a system issue, not just a general practice issue. And influencing and directing that single point of access as a system and ensuring local direct pathway engagement into local services where people know where to go so patients are going to the right place at the right time with the right person will really help. Most GPs are used to a restructure here and there for the NHS but what does this one all mean for the average GP on the front line you know they're not necessarily very engaged with their integrated care system but what do you think they'll start seeing as changes from this new approach? I'm hoping that we've started to see it already with some of the work that's been done with the DES particularly in the last year. PCNs shouldn't be seen as an alternative to general practice it shouldn't be seen as an either or It should be seen as a general practice plus. It's that extra onion skin layer around that general practitioner because they are the most important person in terms of and with their team in terms of patient care and the doctor-patient relationship. 
So PCNs and at-scale organisations, particularly when we can work at place, are probably going to be able to introduce capacity so we can reduce bureaucracy, for example. We can reduce administrative workload. So patients that aren't complex with a sore throat, are they better off being seen in a hub or with a hub team that sits at a PCN level so that we can make sure there's continuity of care for people that need it with their GP? There might be something about creating frailty hubs, for example, where we can organise that wider integrated neighbourhood team and pull in secondary care consultants to be able to deliver more efficient care for our patients so that they are not having to hop between services. So patients are getting care at the right place, at the right person, at the right time. So for me, there's something about releasing some of that skill pressure, risk pressure that's on our general practitioners at the moment Because we can use PCNs to upskill staff and to create expertise that solves the problem for a number of practices. One of the things that often comes up is that people just don't have the headspace to kind of think about some of these things because they're too busy just like trying to get through the patients on their list that morning. How do you think you resolve that? I think it's about recognising that the status quo is going to be very difficult to continue with. You know, when it's a little bit of a burning platform at the moment, isn't it? So there's a real onus on CDs to make sure that a PCN is very interconnected with its surgeries. There's lots of people around the country that have developed solutions in different ways. So I'm a great believer in not reinventing the wheel. I'm a great believer in taking the best of what people have done, making sure it applies to my community and delivering it, particularly when you use ARRS roles intelligently you can start to really meet the needs of your um your higher risk patients particularly with personalized care so if i give you an example of something i read in surrey for example that where the top one percent of a population that was attending a and e the most there was something like a thousand to one ratio of their attendances in general practice to their a and e attendances and by targeting personalised care, targeting it with a social prescriber, bringing in the consultants, you know, in that integrated neighbourhood team and delivering it differently. So you do have to invest time, but actually the number of GP contacts started to reduce significantly. So we can help our weight of demand by trying to work at our demand a little bit more intelligently and using our resources wisely letting people know that there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is a way through this, but we're going to have to be brave and courageous and think a little bit differently. One of the things I did want to talk to you about was the additional roles reimbursement scheme. And you've mentioned that a few times in the conversation. This is one of the main sort of planks of funding that's come through primary care networks is to recruit 26,000 additional staff. Just people listening, they don't know. These are people like paramedics, physiotherapists, social prescribers but it has been widely acknowledged that it's not necessarily working as well as it as it could be do you think it needs to change in any way and what sort of flexibilities do you think PCNs need from how the scheme works absolutely I think PCNs have demonstrated a wonderful recruitment drive I think the estates issue hasn't been easy because actually we wanted to recruit up to 26,000 roles I think the first thing is that we didn't have anywhere to house them. 
And therefore, that flexibility of ARRS roles is really key. The fact that we've brought in the digital and transformation role this year is absolutely fantastic. The fact that we've brought in ANPs this year is fantastic. But we need more. We need to be able to expand that set of roles, maybe even think about that health and social care integrated piece to really start to flex some of the services that sit around our patients so that we have more services that that we can offer. And we need to support those PCNs where there's been difficulty in those employment models where they've been cross-agency. For example, the mental health practitioners. I just want to talk about the fact that ARRS roles and recruiting them are great, but as somebody that's a trainer and somebody that's involved in pharmacist development, clinical pharmacist development, is a real, we have to have a real onus, support, focus on clinical supervision to really utilise and push capabilities within our ARRS roles. We have some fantastic skill, but they need to be supported and upskilled and with people that have time and skills to do it. Do you think people have enough time to do that at the moment? As we've gone through it, CD with two sessions alone, this has fallen upon them usually. And I think that it's been a real challenge for a lot of CDs because we've just talked about that operational role and development that CDs have had to do and that system role and leadership development. So I think it has been a challenge. There are some real good cases, Emma, of where our PCNs and at scale providers, again, have worked with their training hubs, actually, to deliver bespoke supervision and to deliver bespoke induction packages, for example. Again, it's not about CDs thinking, I have to do this on my own. It's about how can I use my partnerships and my system position and influence to be able to pull resources in to deliver that solution. And I think people have done it around the country. You've mentioned the Claire Fuller stock take. So this was the report Claire Fuller wrote for NHS England about how to integrate primary care. And one of the ideas it puts forward is that PCN should evolve into these integrated neighbourhood teams, which would bring community providers together, work closely with acute and mental health teams. Um, it, it seems to me that this is kind of the direction of travel NHS England wants everyone to go down. But do you think this is the right approach for everyone? And you know, how easy is it going to be to make that leap? I think that last bit is the key question, isn't it? How easy is it going to make that leap? Definitely from our members, we felt that the final report reflected the areas that we could look at from a strategic perspective in terms of those integrated neighbourhood teams. It's that extra onion skin around primary care networks. So I talk about onion skins because That's where we've got to to deal with the complexity of health and social care that our patients are needing at the moment. And those integrated neighbourhood teams have sort of almost connect into general practice and connect into primary care, but they have the ability to connect horizontally. So that bit of connecting with our community partners and making sure the district nurses are at the table, the audiologists are at the table, the pharmacists are at the table, the social care workers are at the table, the voluntary care sector organisations are at the table. It's necessary to ensure that personalised care planning can be enabled around those complex patients. I've just talked to you about those high-risk patients that are almost dropping into general practice with a lot of contacts, but actually they may need a different solution because we know 80% of health outcomes are actually related to the wider determinants of health. 
And where there's real complexity, it may be about the skills that sit in general practice. So those integrated neighborhood teams that pull in vertically from with consultant support, the geriatrician sitting around the table, the renal physician sitting around the table, or even the diabetologist will really help accelerate that decision making to deliver good health outcomes for our patients. So for me, it's actually, it's an evolution of primary care. Obviously, one of the really difficult problems, and you did touch on it earlier, that primary care faces is is about estates. There isn't enough building, there's not enough space, you know, loads of GPs are practicing in out of date buildings that aren't really up to the job anymore. Does the NHS Confederation, do you yourself as a clinical director, do you have any thoughts on on what needs to be done to kind of tackle this problem? We recognise that we have real challenges with the states and it's a real limiting factor in us being able to develop our capacity and capability to support, you know, general practice access resilience, for example. So we've definitely recognised that as a confed um, and we are definitely trying to have conversations and influence more organisational support really for GPs to have that expert conversation about estates, because I wonder how many GPs out there understand how to complete an an estates need application, for example, and even our CDs. There's also something about utilising our staff and our roles in a different way. So does everybody need to be in the surgery or police the end place at the same time? But lots of primary care buildings aren't fit for purpose. And we do need to prioritise primary care estates, don't we, to make sure that it's delivering for the future and, and that it's fit for the future and that we can we can host diagnostics, for example, and we can host an increased expansion of ARRS roles or we can host that MDT under one roof because healthcare is, as I think I heard somewhere, is a contact sport And those relationships are absolutely key to efficient and collaborative and compassionate integrated care. So I think estates are almost the bedrock of this wonderful sort of nirvana of integrated care systems. And therefore, prioritising primary care estates has to be a priority for the ICS. The current five-year GP contract comes to an end in 2024 So obviously, over the next year or so, there's going to be extensive discussions about what's going to change and where things are going. Do you think PCNs are here to stay? PCNs have definitely delivered on an at-scale solution for primary care that is more uniform than we have had in the past. Um, I recall that we've been working in neighbourhoods and localities since I became a GP but I have not delivered as much as I have done since I've been a CD. We may not have quite delivered the expectations of the long-term plan, but actually the constraints of COVID vaccination programme have have sort of chopped and changed the direction of, of PCNs. But despite that, we have really performed with the DES and be delivered beyond expectations in terms of our partnerships at neighbourhood, place and system. For me, it's about our ICBs and our national leaders recognising that potential of PCNs and understanding that we are heading in the right direction and reading the full report and taking it as read that there is real potential for primary care to be the engine room 
and the navigator of transformation within the community, but understanding that we need support in leadership, in data, and in terms of being enabled to have representation at place to really influence those services and influence integrated care. And ensuring that finance flows actually also flow with how an integrated care pathway might change because you will be starting to look at delivering more care in the community and intensifying that personalised approach in the community for those patients that need more support. So whilst we recognise there's a challenging operating environment, Emma, I actually think there's real potential, as I've said, from 24 onwards, and we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's just about leveraging some change that allows PCNs to actually the flex and the autonomy to deliver for their communities. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And thanks so much to Aruna for taking the time to talk with me. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do think about giving us a rating or leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Hopefully a nice one. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice and access a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 